Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everybody, welcome to another new episode of Undying Light. I'm your host, Pastor Alex, and back at it once again with another new episode for you. Um, just kind of hanging through things right now. I have really have uh, transitioned away from a lot of things that I've been doing in the past and focusing just on the ministry, and uh, I start the hospice position tomorrow, the 2nd of November, so I'm recording this on the 1st of November. And uh, so I'm pretty excited about that. I'm hoping that this will lead to a full-time gig down the road, and we'll see, you know, how all of that unfolds. I'm still working on getting some pricing and all of that lined up for the book. So hopefully, in a couple of maybe by next Friday's episode, I should have answers and then a timeline planned out. But I'm going to say a fully printed copy by early 2024. That's kind of the goal that I have in mind. Maybe a little bit late, you know, a few months into it, but hopefully still early 2024. That's my target as of right now. So other than that, I'm not doing a whole lot. I'm not really on social media a whole lot anymore. I just don't have the time for it. And uh, so, and that's just that. So if you want to get a hold of me, you know how to do so. You can hit me up on my email. It's um Ministries at gmail.com and I'll try to answer you as quick as possible but that's really all I got right now I'm not you know you could DM me on Instagram if you choose to but whatever's let's get into the material at hand we are continuously working through the gospel of Matthew we're making some good uh, strides now we're going to work on um, the first 13 verses of chapter 17 this is the transfiguration Uh, I'm going to preference this time with saying that the 25 or so minutes I'm dedicating to this section will not exhaust it, won't even begin to discuss the complexities of this particular passage, uh, and uh, more than likely we will still leave a lot of stones unturned. This is probably, in my opinion, one of the hardest sections in all of Matthew to work through, especially when time is of the, of the essence. And so we can work through some of the basic 
information given and we'll look at what is going on in this passage, but there are so many things that we can go after and a lot of different um, material pieces that we can cover. And so, uh, in fact, you know, there's entire books and such written that discuss this topic and all of the implications from this transfiguration point. I think, like I said, it, it's probably one of the hardest ones to kind of converse because there's just, it, it gives us just enough information and we don't have a ton more. And so a lot of it becomes speculative and that's when we can get into some heretical waters. But I, I think we should be able to take this at least at surface value and hopefully unpack it to where you can say, oh, I never really understood that or I never heard that before. Or maybe that's a new insight or, yeah, I've heard that before. It makes complete sense, you know. So let's look at it here. Verses 1 through 13 of chapter 17 in the Gospel of Matthew. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came out and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say the, that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But did, you, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also will the Son of Man certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So some uh, interesting text, again, to uh, work through. This is, like I said, so very complicated because we don't understand or really have any inkling of what the transfiguration is. The best theological answer I can give is that Jesus transfigures into the glorified and resurrected body uh, one that is free of sin and free of the earthly flesh, one that is divine, completely and utterly perfect. So that is probably the best theological answer I can give you. And again, it just leads us to see how this particular passage correlates to how John describes him in the book of Revelation when he's got that face shining like the sun, his eyes are like fire, um, and then he continues on with his description. So, you know, John is writing in the book of Revelation in the first chapter on this descriptive narrative of what Jesus appears like. But here we have that same comparison as Matthew is recording just a few elements that his face shines like the sun and his clothes become white as light. So he, you know, takes on that that resurrected body, the one that is free 
of all of the sin and turmoil and all that. Even though he is sinless right now, he is freed from this body of sin. He is freed from this body of death and decay. He is in his new glorified resurrected body. So after six days here, it's an indication that after Peter's confession of faith, the transfiguration is closely connected. It follows right in line with that within a week here. Uh, Three of the first disciples called, if we go back to the earliest parts of Matthew, uh, Jesus selected them several times to be with him at various moments, uh, as we'll see in chapter 26 in Matthew, Mark chapter 5 as well. Uh, The mountain in question um, could be uh, Mount Tabor or Hermon, and the mountains are often common sites that deal with significant events. The temptation from Matthew 4, the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5, prayer in Matthew 14, the feeding of the 4,000 in Matthew 15, and God reveals himself to both Moses and Elijah on Mount Mount Sinai or uh, Herob back in the book of Exodus and again in 1 Kings 19.8. So a lot happens on a mountainside. You know, it's good for us to understand placement in history behind these things and that good things generally happen, divine or significant events often happen with God on a mountainside for various reasons. You know, if we look at like the Sermon on the Mount, it's used as a projection, a stage, if you would, to preach out to the crowd. Um, The temptation is so uh, the devil takes Jesus up and shows him the world from a high mountaintop. And so all of these things have significant impacts on the Christian life. And it's just good for us to understand that this is what happens. Jesus is secluding himself with Peter, James, and John, and they go up to this mountainside, and this is where he is transfigured. Now, I'm going to butcher this word because you guys know I am not a Greek or Hebrew uh, professor or whatever. You know, I don't have a degree in it. But metamorphophenomy. Right? I don't even know if that's even the right Greek word. It's M-E-T-A-M-O-R-P-H-O-O-M-A-I. So if you can pronounce it, congratulations. I can't. I have terrible eye-to-tongue coordination. But the Greek here means to change into a wholly different form or appearance. Uh, the English is metamorphosis. And this is Christ's appearance is changing now into this dazzling bright. He is displaying his divine glory. I want to make a a very quick distinction here, though. Jesus is showing himself to both Moses and Elijah and then to Peter, James, and John. However, when we read accounts in the Old Testament, God never shows himself. God the Father never shows himself. The image of God is always found in Christ. The, The visible speaking image, the word of God, is found in Christ Jesus. And so... That's a big distinction for us to understand. God the Son is the visible representation of God the Father. All three part of the triune Godhead, all three separate persons, all three having the same function while functioning on different, you know, having different paths, if you would. The Holy Spirit's the giver of the faith. Jesus Christ is the death and uh, resurrection and the atonement. And God the Father is God the Father. So, I mean, there's a lot we can get into if we dig into the Trinity, but we're not going to for this particular situation. But it is good to show the distinction here that Jesus Christ shows himself to these and, um, you know, kind of acts as that face, if you would, of God. So Moses and Elijah, 
We have the great lawgiver and the outstanding prophet or representative of Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. And this is, goes back to Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 11 as well. And again, another piece for us to understand, Jesus is telling us that until this world passes away, not a single law or uh, will, will fade. The law still has an effect. The prophets, though, that office has been closed with the coming of Christ. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, tells us that in the first chapter, that long, long ago and through many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets and the priests, and now he speaks to us through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and the completion of the office of prophet. He is also the accumulation and completion of the law. The entire law is completed in him. But until he returns, the law still has effect on us, and it acts in those in the three manners, whether it's a curb, a mirror, or a deterrent. And so we deal with the law still in this flesh, but we know that it is completed in Christ. But here the law is represented as Moses, the great lawgiver. And if you read through the Old Testament, you read through the first five books of the uh, of the Old Testament, you've got the Torah, what also called the Pentateuch. You know, you've got Genesis, Exodus, uh, and Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and Numbers, and you've got these five books that all deal with the law of God. Genesis, not necessarily so much. However, you see the entrance of sin, death, and the devil into the world. Exodus, we see the establishment of the Ten Commandments, and then we get into Leviticus, where we have all of the laws given to uh, the Jewish nation. And then um, those are what we function on when we talk about the law. And it could be moral, it could be civil, it could be um, ceremonial laws, but they all have some sort of implication on the people of Israel. For the Christian, the only law that really has uh, applicable effect upon us is the Ten Commandments. And those are generally acting as a curb for us, but they uh, also act as a mirror showing that we are incapable of fulfilling the demands of the law. So when we see Moses come, we understand he is the great lawgiver. When we have Elijah come, he is that great prophet, the outstanding one. And both of these together represent all of the prophets and all of the lawgivers in the Old Testament. Um, and then we have Jesus now. So this is, again, another you know huge storyline that we can go off of is just talking about these three people. We can I, I've done sermons on you know, the law and the, and the prophets being present, but Jesus being the uh, completion of those things. Uh, I did entire sermons on those, and I think it's it, those are good, but the focus shouldn't always rest on just that. I think we should see more the glory of Christ in the situation being in his transformed or transfigured presence, in his deity shining, his divine glory shining bright, his resurrected body, the perfect completion of what he is to accomplish. And he does tell us here towards the end that he is going to suffer at the hands of these men that killed John the Baptist and have killed the prophets before. And so Jesus is saying that this, what you see or what you witnessed me being transformed is what you will get in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a glimpse of what is yet to come. And, you know, he's talking to Peter, James, and John, as they are walking down the mountain back into essentially his normal human and divine self, that hyperstatic union in the normality of his human, uh, his humanity. And so Jesus is walking back down the mountain, 
makes that statement that he will soon go and die. And upon his resurrection and upon the coming of him again, we will see this glorified or transfigured person of Jesus Christ. So uh, that's where we'll, we'll leave that part. Let's move on here to verse 4. Um, Peter's proposal gives Jesus the same honor shown to Elijah and Moses, but thus implies that Jesus is actually an equal to them. It's kind of an insult from Peter. And I don't think Peter intended it, but I think he's just paying witness to this spectacular moment. And he has Moses and Elijah elevated in his mind, and he then actually is decreasing Jesus to be on the same level as, as them. So the bright cloud here, uh, God is revealing his presence once again uh, on Mount Sinai with a cloud in Exodus 19.9. And here he does so with Jesus, Peter, James, John, and Moses and Elijah. Uh, the father answers the question Jesus had asked the disciples back in chapter 16, verse 15, and what Peter, James, and John have not heard at the baptism of Jesus. They hear it now. So they weren't present at that time, but they hear the words that God speaks to them. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. All who want to be saved ought to do and ought to be listening to the preaching of Christ. For the preaching and hearing of God's word are the Holy Spirit's instruments by which and through these instruments the Spirit desires to work to convert people to God and do the work in them both to will and to do. So that is taken from uh, Luther's large catechism. So they fall on their faces here in verse 6. The bright cloud has come. We hear the voice, and then the disciples, Peter, James, and John, fall on their face. They're terrified. Uh, The disciples have overcome with awe at what they hear. Again, not a fear as being scared like you get when you watch a horror movie, but this is a fear as an awestruck. This is a breathtaking, spectacular, indescribable moment that these three have partaken in. Uh, Jesus comes around and touches them as they are dazed in this uh, moment, and this is you know, acting in his human nature here. Uh, Moses and Elijah have now vanished. Jesus has returned to his normal appearance in verse 8. And the three disciples have obviously seen something out of the ordinary. But until Jesus rises from the dead, the general public and the other disciples could not even possibly understand it or comprehend what is happening. Again, another marker of secrecy given um, that uh, Jesus gives to these three men. So Elijah must come first. This is what the scribes had taught. It's on an old basis uh, prophecy from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, that before the Messiah come, Elijah would reappear. If Jesus was the Messiah, the disciples wondered where Elijah's appearance in this vision fulfilled his prophecy. And uh, Jesus agrees with the scribes' interpretation, and he says that Elijah has already come. It was, in fact, John the Baptist who did the work of the new Elijah. Unfortunately, John's ministry has ended abruptly back in chapter 14, and Jesus will suffer the same fate as John, not the same outcome in terms of being beheaded, but the same fate as being put to death. The disciples now have grasped what Jesus had taught them earlier about John back in chapter 11. So a lot of interconnected natures here happening in this passage of Matthew. It's drawing us all the way back to all these things that Matthew has been writing about 
all the way back to the fourth chapter. In fact, even further back into the third chapter of Matthew. All of these things are now finally coming around and showing themselves in full circle. And then Peter, James, and John are starting to understand and put these puzzle pieces together. And they're seeing the bigger uh, bigger picture take fold. The transfiguration of Jesus confirms for the disciples that he is truly the Messiah, the son of the living God, as Peter has confessed. The transfiguration is a foretaste of that coming glory, Christ's resurrection and his earthly appearances afterwards, his ascension and finally heaven. These comfort one another with these words, though we are still troubled by the cares and ills of this earthly life. Every believer shares in the vision of what it is to come. First John chapter three, verse two. So, that's the passage in a nutshell. Again, there is so much we can focus on. If I was, uh, we've done uh, on Transfiguration Sunday, I do a sermon on this every year. And so I picked kind of different pieces and have worked through it. Uh, I've done a law and the gospel text on this passage. I've done the, the prophecy of the death of Jesus Christ, of the resurrection. I've talked about his glorious appearances all of these things are, are, you know, things to kind of mull around in our minds. There's a lot happening in this passage um, and a lot that we can spend 20 or 30 minutes talking about. Each of these topics are, are worthy of, of much explanation and, uh, and, and just further in-depth study. And so um, I don't want to say something that's kind of off the cuff because I feel like if I'm rattling too long, I'm bound to say something that's completely and utterly weird, wrong, or, or maybe could be misinterpreted. And so I'm not going to spend more time kind of spinning the wheels on this passage. What I would recommend and urge you to do is to read these 13 verses, read them over and over and over again, read them, you know, they take you five minutes, if, if less than that, two minutes, if you're, if you can read quickly, read them three or four times over the course of quite a few days, read them two or three times each day over the course of a week, and just let these kind of roll around in your head like a dryer, right? You want, you want to work through these passages and need the words in here and grab yourself a good study Bible Grab yourself a couple study Bibles. Don't just rely on one because one's going to give you a biased perspective. Get two or three, get four, get some commentaries and just read through those, read through that material and get the different perspectives. Because again, there's, there's a lot of different things that people are saying about these passages. However, I will always caution you if it's not explicitly stated in the text or can be supported by text elsewhere it is generally going to be a speculative perspective, which can be dangerous in the long run when it comes to understanding theology. Speculative is okay in certain situations and in certain parts of scripture. However, we should not base our entire scripture on our own uh, presuppositions or what we've been taught to say or hear or think. We take scripture at its word and we Look at how did the apostles understand this? How did the early church come to understand this? How do uh, the church fathers and the Reformation and look at even the Catholic, the Orthodox, how do they understand these passages? Take in all of those uh, perspectives and work through these passages because they are incredibly challenging. Now, the rest of 17 is fairly easy to work through. We'll, We'll see Jesus healing a boy with a demon. Uh, and we'll have another foretelling of his death and resurrection and a temple tax being instituted here. And then we're done with 17, so we'll probably do it in two weeks. 
And then we got chapter 18 with the argument of who's the greatest and then temptations to sin. And we carry on through the rest of 18. And so really, until we get to the Olivet Discourse in uh, 24 and 25, the next probably five and a half chapters are fairly easy to deal with. This part is probably the hardest in all scripture, in my opinion. I find this passage to even be more complex in dealing with than the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is pretty straightforward. It is cut and dry, in my opinion. And we'll work through that uh, uh, when we get to it. The death and resurrection of Jesus, cut and dry, tells it exactly what's taking place. Very easy to work through. But this passage, there's a lot of, you know, kind of side tales that can be taken upon or, you know, when, when looking at it. So be cautious, read it, enjoy it, study it, love it, work through it, and and just embrace the the mystery that remains because that's what a lot of it is. We we can't tell you much past Matthew's basic de- uh, description of Jesus, face shining like the sun, and his clothes are white as a light. So those two things are the only thing that describes Jesus in this, but we know that he is transfigured and we know that those disciples are now kind of in this awe state because God has spoken and they just, it's an overload for them. They cannot comprehend what is taking place. The interesting thing is Moses and Elijah, they've already witnessed Jesus in this form. They've known Jesus since they've died and have been with him in heaven. So this is not a shocking moment for them. They they come down and they're talking to him like like they know him. Like, hey, you know, we, we talked yesterday and da-da-da-da-da. Again, time in eternity is different than time here on earth. In fact, time doesn't exist in eternity. It doesn't. It's there is no time. And so what they just you know have experienced. Could have been, hey, we just talked about this. Just want to clarify this. All right, you're on your way now. You know, it's like it, it, it just it's an interesting thing to to comprehend and to ponder over. Um, so that's that. You know, it's just it always leaves me in just pure awe and pure wonder every time I read this passage, and I love it, and I love preaching it every year. And so I hope you guys caught just a little glimpse of that passion today as we work through this. Again, I didn't want to expound it too deeply because I didn't want to hit the weeds and then, you know, without really, you know, studying. When I do a passage like this for a sermon, I spend uh, eight to 12 hours studying through it. Um, and I have a lot of different notes and a little, a lot of different directions to work through. When I do a podcast, I generally look at my next text. I read some commentaries and some notes and I just kind of work through it in my mind. Um, not to say that I don't pay the same amount of attention to a show as I do my sermons, which that that's just how it is. Um, I, it, you know, cause my sermons, I'm preaching to people, my podcast, I'm just kind of talking through the text. And so it's a little easier to do the podcast versus doing a sermon by, by a long shot. In fact, so I'm going to close her down with that. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Friday. By the time you hear this, this Sunday in our church and with probably many Lutheran churches around the world. We will be celebrating All Saints Sunday, those who have passed in the last 12 months. We will acknowledge them and uh, preach for them, and we will um, call to remember that they have died and have gone to heaven to be with Christ and are enjoying their eternal rest, and we are still toiling away under the hot sun, but we should not forget them. We should not forget their efforts, and we should not forget the love and mercy that they have conveyed to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we embrace the rest uh, that they find in Christ in the gospel that we will proclaim to the congregations. So thank you once again for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. Have a great week. God bless. We'll see you next week.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.